Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You, Lord, for Your revelation. Lord, may we see You this morning. May we hear You. May we grasp in our hearts Your glory, the hope of the covenant, the arrangements that have been made so that the name of Christ may be revealed. Yes, Lord, reveal Yourself to us. Rekindle in our hearts a love for You that we might worship You and treasure You. That we might be witnesses for You, just like those shepherds and just like that apostle. Help us to see You and to know You that we might show You And so may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Do you remember the first day of school? It was largely similar to every class, I suppose. Each person would have their turn to introduce themselves to their class. It was an opportunity to get to know and to connect with each other, to build rapport. I remember these perennial experiences. I remember feeling the butterflies in my stomach. I remember experiencing the indecisiveness in my mind as I considered what I was going to say. And so as we approach our Holy Scripture readings this morning, I would like to ask each of you, if you were to describe yourself to this congregation, What would you say? Would it be like those words for which the Apostle Paul describes? Would it be like those actions for which the lowly shepherds show? What would you say? I submit that there is great wisdom for which every Christian ought to glean in this passage or in these passages. Here we find the qualities of those whose identity, purpose, words, and actions are fixed and focused on Christ and His glory. Ironically, there is a striking similarity between these two characters, the lowly shepherds and the Apostle Paul. Like the shepherds, Paul shared a common purpose, a common focus, a common submission, and a common service. So what was it that anchored these two very different characters? After all, one was a sophisticated and educated Roman citizen and Pharisee who was likely a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin, while the others were almost invisible people who no one knew, shepherds keeping watch at night. They were shepherds in a region where it was said that nothing good or significant could come out of that region. They seem to be diametrically opposed, or at least opposite. But actually, these characters share striking similarity. And so I invite you to open up your service booklets. We'll be looking at the Gospel reading and the Epistle reading. In the remaining minutes, I would like for us to consider these similarities between the two very different characters. I'd like for us to consider this so that we might garner 
the important lessons for which we are to learn. So the first lesson, the first lesson that we must learn is that a Christian must be possessed by Christ. A Christian must be possessed by Christ. Look at how both the lowly shepherds and the Apostle Paul demonstrate an undeniable submission. We are told in verse 15 in our gospel passage that the shepherds agreed to go because of what the Lord had made known to them. That's why they agreed to go. Because of what he made known to them. And then in verse 17, we're told that they made known not their interpretations, not their thoughts, not their sayings, but all that was told them concerning this child. And then in verse 20, we see them glorifying and praising God. Why? Because of what they had heard and seen, it says. You see, the object of their praise is the Word of God that has been revealed to them. It is the revealed Jesus who is Christ the Lord. They were consumed. They were possessed by God in His revelation. You see how they point to Him because He became their master and their controller? He became their Lord. They saw not their privilege... All they saw was his glory. And what about the Apostle Paul? Look at how he describes himself, both his identity and his vocation. First, he describes his identity. He calls himself, at the very start, a slave or a servant. The Greek word doulos is a strong term. It conveyed for early Christians the idea of complete and utter devotion. It's not only about submission, you see. It's about possession. He is a slave of Christ. So right at the very start of this letter, even in Paul's introduction to a church that he may have not even planted, Paul begins to move to the margins, you see. And the subject moves to the center. What is the subject of this letter, this treatise? It is God. Leon Morris says, Romans is about a book, is a book about God. No topic is treated with anything like the frequency of God. Everything Paul touches in this letter, he relates to God. Then Paul describes his vocation or his purpose. He says that he is called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. Though he, sent to deliver the, though he is sent to deliver this message of the gospel, his position is not the point. Did you catch that? He is called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. Set apart for the gospel of God. That's what he says. Separation is typically associated with a negative action, right? A cutting away of something. But here Paul uses it in a positive way. Set apart for the gospel of God. You see, a Pharisee literally meant to be a set apart one. 
And Paul was a Pharisee. But now as a recipient of God's glorious good news, he realizes that it is not as much about him as it is about God, the one for whom he has been joined to. It is about God. And if it is about God, it is about his good news. And if it's about his good news, it is about God's church. So when we see this word calling, this word calling is really about the calling of the church. He is an apostle not for himself, but for this church. See, while Paul's set-apartness is distinct, it is a reality for all of God's church because it is about the message of the pure gospel for the church. We may have different assignments, but we are united in God's gospel. God unites us. He builds us through His gospel. Just as Paul's identity is wrapped up in his Lord, so is his purpose, his calling. Yes, though he is a slave, he is a slave that has received a glorious inheritance that has shaped his identity and transformed his entire life. And so I ask, are we true worshipers of God? Are we slaves of Christ? If we wish to give witness of this God of the shepherds and this God of the apostle, then we must worship him and him alone. He is our Lord. His name is the name that is above every name. He is our salvation. The late John Stott once described it in this way. If we truly worship God, acknowledging and adoring his infinite worth, We find ourselves impelled, he says, to make known to others in order that they may worship him too. Do you see how worship leads to witness? And witness leads back to worship? That is the answer to our problem and our predicament. Is that we be people who are worshiping God. People of worship. We must be slaves of Christ. Servants. Submitted and focused and serving. We cannot be a worshiping church without being a witnessing church. And we cannot truly give witness of the living and the loving God without worshiping Him. And so we would do well to evaluate our hearts. What is it that we treasure? Are we giving witness of this good God revealed to us? Are we truly worshiping Him? Are we willing to cast off those things that we cherish so much that Christ might be lifted up? This is the cross that we are to carry. It comes in the form of preference, prerogative, and even principles. Let us make the major thing the major thing. Like Romans, our lives must be a book about God. He must be lifted up. He must be the center. We must be at the periphery. The second lesson that we must learn is that a Christian must have an accurate and a clear vision. 
an accurate and a clear vision. Now look at how the shepherds and the apostles share a clear sense of purpose and focus. Their actions and words are well-ordered and organized. There's much that we do not know about them. We're not told if they locked the sheep up or if the sheep traveled with them to see the Christ. We're not told if they traveled by foot or by donkey. But simply that they went, saw, shared, and worshipped because of what they had heard and seen. There's great wisdom, I think, in these omissions. Perhaps we should focus more on what we are to do rather than how we are to do it. Thousands have made idols out of means. Even God's gifts can become idols and distractions rather than means of true worship. And so we would do well to take caution to ensure that our love is well-ordered And how do we ensure that it's well-ordered? Let's focus on the what we are to do. Yes, we are to go. We are to share. We are to worship. We are to know. We can love our prayer books. We can love our rituals. We can love our music. But let us not love it too much. We can love reaching the lost, and we should. But let us not love them too much. We can love God's church, and we should. But let us not love it too much. You see, our greatest affection and desires must properly and supremely be placed upon the one who is supremely good. The one who makes himself available to us. God Almighty, the Holy One who condescends, becomes flesh, takes our punishment in our place. On Friday, we begin a new season. We are in Christmastide, 12 days of Christmas. And on Friday marks the 12th day, and we begin a new season, Epiphany. It's a reminder that, or at least Epiphany, the season of Epiphany, I should say, is a reminder that we must mature in our knowledge of Christ. We must see him and savor him for who he is, not just as the babe, but as the savior, the substitute, the conqueror, the Lord. And the only way that we can organize ourselves and succeed in God's glorious mission is that we must hear him. You see, we must see him. We must savor him. We must enjoy him. You see how worship is the answer to what we are to do. It orders ourselves, right? It orders us both individually and as a community. Yes, we must love Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It has been said, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. You see, the church will rightly be organized only after she has a heart for God. Once we see Him for who He is, once we have a love for God through Christ Jesus, then we will be able to have an obedience of faith for Him with His people. Yes, we will be united together and He will build us together. 
just as the shepherds illustrate through action this clear and accurate vision, so does Paul illustrate through words. The shepherds show us what it looks like, and Paul tells us of what it is. He calls it a calling. Three times in these first seven verses, Paul uses the word to call. In verse 1, he says that he, has, he is called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. In verse 6, he describes the church in Rome as those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. And in verse 7, he describes them as those who are loved by God and called to be saints. This clear vision that all Christians must have, it is rooted in being called. It is the revelation of the good God. He's the one that is calling us. It is a man's religion that does for God. But it is a divine religion that does for man. You see, God is doing the work. He is calling us. He is revealing and He is working. I pray that we will know this God who works for us. So do you hear our Lord calling? One can be a follower of Christ for 20, 30, or 40 or 50 years. But he must hear Christ calling today as he heard it yesterday. We cannot serve two masters. We must love God and Him alone. And the only way to do that is to hear Him. Our hearts must be awakened with the love of Christ that possesses and points us to Him with a clear and an accurate vision. We can have the best music. We can have the best preacher. We can have the best Anglican service. But if we hear not the call of Christ, then we have not a clear and accurate vision. And we, if we have not this clear and accurate vision, then we are going in the wrong direction. So let us make sure, each of us, to hear this calling from the Lord. The third lesson that we should learn is that a Christian must serve God's beloved. We must serve those for whom God loves. Look at how the shepherds and Paul serve those for whom God loves. We read in verse 7 of the epistle, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Paul may have not planted this church. We do not fully know. But he may not have planted this church. But he most certainly serves this church. There's a lesson for us here. You see, he wrote his longest and his greatest letter to this church. He wrote a letter that details and demonstrates God's glorious good news. Notice how just as Paul began with this with the Christ, with Christian greeting, notice how he ends with it too in chapter 16. He provides the longest list 
of greeting recorded in the Holy Scriptures. Notice not only does he detail grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, but he also shows it. Read through that list when you leave this service. And notice how Paul's final warning in verses 17 to 20 is sandwiched between his greeting and his glory to God. The point is this, the way to extinguish the fiery darts of the wicked one, the way to overcome division, deception, and contrary doctrine is by living out the gospel. It is by the grace and the peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we live in that grace and peace, we will walk in His wisdom. Yes, we must serve the beloved. We must serve those for whom God loves. And we must do this by detailing and demonstrating to them the glorious Christian greeting. And you know what He will do when we do this? He will protect us. He will provide for us. He will not divide us, but He will unite us. He will not deceive us, but He will give us a clear vision. He will reveal to us the pure and powerful gospel that causes us to worship Him as we ought. Like often depicted in the crowd that surrounded Christ in the gospel stories, we can be sure that it will be a mixed crowd, those for whom we serve. But we will serve the Beloved. If the gospel be preached, if the sacraments be duly practiced, then God's people are there. There will be some who will walk away, some who will stay, there will be some who will blossom and flourish, and there will be others who will be scorched. But if God's gospel seeds are being planted, then the light of Christ is making visible those for whom He loves. So let us serve them. We must serve them, not in a way that just turns them inward or just turns them outward. That is not love. We must serve them with the good news. Let us serve them by detailing and demonstrating the good news. We must know it and we must show it. Paul charges the church in chapter 16 of Romans, with regards to Phoebe, he charges the church to welcome her in a way that is worthy of the saints. So let us welcome, let us welcome God's people in a way that is worthy of holy ones. That word saints literally means holy ones. What a bold and audacious welcome. Let us greet each other in the name that is above every name. Every knee shall bow, every head shall bow, and every knee shall bow. Let us welcome them in the peace and the grace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that the shepherds did not remain silent as they likely were before the angel had appeared. 
No, it was no longer night for them. The dawn from on high broke upon them. And when light shines in darkness, it exposes things, doesn't it? We see things clearly. We learn what we are to do, how we're to do it. We learn what we are to say. We learn where we are to go. The shepherds, they went about sharing all that had been told to them. They had news to tell. So what is the news that you have to tell? I asked a similar question that I asked at the start of this message. If you were to describe yourself, what would you say? Would you say much of yourself and little of God in His gospel? Or would you say much of God in His gospel and little of yourself? On this day, we celebrate the circumcision and the naming of Christ. The circumcision signifies God's covenant with Abraham. Before it ever signified God's people, God's promise, and God's purpose to redeem and to save His people, it signified our problem. If we wish to have good news, then we must know the bad news. We must know what we have been saved from. You see, God's covenant is our hope. And God's name is our salvation. The name of Christ signifies the character of God manifesting the fulfillment of His promise in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Paul introduced himself not as Saul, That's not the name that he chose to be called after he became a follower of Christ. Paul introduced himself not as Saul, not as a Pharisee, but as Paul and as a slave to Christ. The word Paul, the name Paul literally means little one. And isn't that what he shows in this introduction in Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 7? He shows that he is little, but God is great. He moves to the periphery, and God moves to the center. Yes, those lowly shepherds and that little apostle give us a snapshot of what that heavenly vision looks like. You see, it's not about us. It is about the God, the true God, who has been good to us. And we will enjoy the benefits for all eternity by worshiping Him. Amen.